Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Sean, and I'm a program producer here at ACME. Uh, I'd like to start this evening by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, uh, the Wurundjeri people, the people of the Kulin Nations, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Uh, now, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's session of Live in the Studio, co-presented with the Emerging Writers Festival. Um, we are podcasting this evening, so if you could turn off your phone so there's no ringtones on the podcast, that would be great. Um, this door is now locked. If you need to leave this space for a bathroom break or for any other reason, there's a door just on this side here, um, and there'll be someone that can usher you out. Uh, but for those unfamiliar, unfamiliar with the program, Live in the Studio is a series of ongoing events that explore the small screen here at ACME. Uh, we discuss topical TV content from both past and currently airing television series. Uh, the program's looked at everything from sex and violence in Game of Thrones to television life behind bars on Orange is the New Black, uh, and even explored the much-loved Degrassi series with an event that included a live Skype interview with Joey Jeremiah himself. Um, <laughs> Joey couldn't make it tonight, uh, but tonight we do, uh, we've joined forces with the Emerging Writers Festival to send a panel of writers into the archives of the ABC to take a somewhat nostalgic look at our iconic national broadcaster. Uh, that panel is, of course, made up of the lovely people you see before you. Uh, from right to left, we have Toby Feely, Max Olinick, Jane Howard, Penny Modra, and tonight's facilitator, Steph Van Schilt. Uh, Stephanie is deputy editor of The Lifted Brow, co-host of the Rereaders podcast, and is the TV columnist for Kill Your Darlings. Uh, her writing has featured in various local and international publications, including Crikey, Junkie, and The Big Issue. Uh, she's currently completing an MA in creative writing with a focus on television criticism at Monash. Uh, and she's also no stranger to the studio here, having just appeared last week talking about Veronica Mars. Uh, Steph will be leading tonight's discussion and introducing you all to the speakers, so I'll hand over to her now. But before I do, please join me in welcoming the entire panel to the studio. Leading might be a bit strong, but um, I'll be here moderating, I guess. Uh, just as a little introduction, the ABC, our national broadcasting corporation, was launched as a television service back when technology arrived on our shores in 1956. An integral part of the Australian television landscape, our public broadcaster, often referred to as Auntie, has since blossomed and now provides four non-commercial channels and an overseas satellite channel. We're here tonight to explore the archives of the ABC, as Sean just said, um, and our panel will consider just why ABC has made such an impact on Australian TV audiences by exploring the network as both a formative news source and also by taking a bit of a nostalgic trip into programs past. Now, my personal relationship with the ABC, it, it has played a huge part in my upbringing. As an 80s and 90s child, I can still recite the opening to Super Ted. It's the lamest go-to party trick, I think, that ever exists. Quite long. Yeah. Um, and I often call out, Burke, feed me if I'm hungry. And I'm forever trying to find somebody else who can remember the claymation dogs who performed an a cappella version of Credence Clearwater's Down on the Corner as part of ABC Kids Interstitial. Does anyone here remember that? Yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, I'm going to call on you guys. Um, as I grew, the ABC grew with me. I distinctly remember the thrill of turning down the warning before the iconic Degrassi theme kicked off my favourite show, or because I was and remain a super cool dude staying at home on Saturday nights with my mum and watching the bill. But uh, as I found my social legs, the ABC was still there. I fondly remember watching Rage in the early hours with friends, swaying and straining to keep my stoned eyes on the latest UMI music video and trying not to be the first one to pass out. I was always the first one to pass out. Uh, and now uh, I still watch the ABC. It's my go-to news source. Um, it, it, yeah, it just kind of has always been and always will be, hopefully, which is something we'll probably touch upon. Um, so I'm clearly not the only one who has personal relationship with the ABC. Obviously, both you and our amazing panel are here tonight for that reason. So I will just say that we will take questions at the end. So everyone will present their thing. Think of your questions, hold on to them, and then we'll open it to the floor once everyone is presented. So without further ado, I'll call on our first presenter here in the studio, Penny Modra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, just a little about Penny. She's the editorial director at The Good Copy, a new Melbourne-based writing studio and publisher. She spent seven years as the editor of 3000 and editorial director of the 1000 City, Guide City Guides nationally. She's written weekly visual arts columns for The Age and The Sunday Age and has worked for clients including London's Future Laboratory and PhD students whose thesis is due in 12 hours. <laughs> Penny was a co-founder of Melbourne's experimental poster publishing project, Is Not Magazine, which is sadly no longer around. Mm, R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. So uh, Penny is going to give us a little talk about the marvellous late 80s, early 90s British children's comedy drama, Press gang. Thanks, Penny. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I don't know about comedy, but we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. Um, I want to start by saying that my mum was really strict and wouldn't allow me to watch any commercial channels, which was just really like having a disability, really. Like in primary <laughs> school, you know, everyone would talk about the Henderson kids and stuff, and you just felt. But then, what my I guess my refuge was the afternoon show, which was on the ABC, but also mum doubly approved the afternoon show because it was hosted by James Valentine, who was from Ballarat, which is where my mum's from, and my nana knew James Valentine's nana, and so mum was very approving. But what she didn't kind of, I don't think, realise is there's some really crazy kind of dirty stuff went on, like in, within the programming of the afternoon show, not just Degrassi, but um, I remember, well, Degrassi was a big one, but I remember having my, to my mind totally blown when um, Tanya Lacey, and I can't remember who the other guy was, but do you remember when they went on a strike on Countdown Revolution and they did live industrial action? They wouldn't actually present the show. They just picketed. And then they live for like the whole hour and then they, they got fired after that and the show was cancelled. But still, it was like pretty amazing. It blew my mind and that was really heavy. And also... Um, Looking back, I mean, Roger Ramjet also was just like, what was going on with Roger Ramjet? The guy was taking drugs. That was what he said. He used to say the line, let me take my proton energy pill. It gives me the strength of 20 atom bombs for a period of 20 seconds. And that was the show every time, like something would happen. Then Roger Ramjet would come on and take his pill and then he would kind of kill people and that was that. That was the answer to That was it. And so that, there was, that was quite disturbing. And then I think looking back also, Banana Man was kind of like the Whole Foods version of <laughs> Roger Ramjet, except he was eating bananas. I don't know. Does anyone remember Banana Man? Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
it was that. Yeah. yeah, he was good. And so was Roger Ramjet, but Banana Man was powered by bananas. Um, oh, no, he wasn't Banana Man. He was Eric. He lived yeah. at 29 Acacia Road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then an amazing transformation would occur. Anyway, so actually... The whole thing was pretty, like, mind-blowing for, I don't know, like a pretty nerdy kind of shy kid, and I just am so grateful for having that, and my mum kind of not realising what was going on, or at least I thought not. Um, can I just go to the first clip, Jay, because this, I want to show you, Michael Tun, because after he took over, like, that sort of coincided with me having crushes on people, and Michael <laughs> Tun was the focus of... Like, he really was my ideal man, like I think still. Um, anyway, and he couldn't even speak. Like, he had a speech impediment and he couldn't even understand what he was saying, but he was so cool. He was such a surfer. Anyway, so that was like concentrated my fandom. Um, another thing, and I suppose where I start to talk about that afternoon show having sort of really influenced me, and especially as a writer, but also as just someone who felt they could do things, was... Um, Inspector Gadget, and obviously not Gadget himself, but Penny. Mm. Not only because she had the same name as me, but because um, she had a computer book, and she and I actually made that computer book. I literally made one, and I glued like these buttons into a book, and I convinced this girl in my grade two class that I was like the three D version of Penny from <laughs> Inspector Gadget. But also, anyway, maybe let's go. Should we watch the Inspector Gadget clip? Yeah, because I it's so fun to remember this stuff. I, I think there are so many things about Inspector Gadget that, in retrospect, you realise not only that, like as a kid, I didn't realise that Inspector Gadget was based on Get Smart. Like, in particular, the whole opening of him going through various doors and stuff. But the other stuff about Gadget that you think about in retrospect is just, like, what kind of monster was Inspector Gadget? Like, like is he a human? Like, and <laughs> how can he have springs for legs? Like, how do, what do his feet normally do and stuff, you know? And, and also, even technical things, like, you know, Penny used to always talk to Brain, who's obviously, like, you accept that he's a talking dog that can, can program computers and do stuff. But when Brain was talking to her... What was he looking at? <laughs> like, he only had the microphone. Like, he could hear her, but he was obviously looking at something and gesturing. So, I don't get that. But anyway, the, the main thing that I got from Penny was that, like, okay, and it sort of, I guess, is a rerun of a scenario that most women experience, and that is just being kind of in the thrall of and under the power of a completely incompetent male. <laughs> And being the one that has to actually do stuff even though you never get the credit for it, you know. But then I think at a young age, just the idea that there was a chick who could take charge and go, yeah, I can do that and then do it was kind of empowering enough and maybe only in retrospect I realised how messed up the whole thing was. But anyway, um, so I see um, Penny from Inspector Gadget as a kind of precursor to my main influence and in thanks to the afternoon show and that was Linda Day from Press Gang. Now, Press Gang, now I'm going to assume that I guess you guys have at least heard of Press Gang. Has there anyone not? Oh, um, you've heard of it. Everyone, yeah, okay. Well, Press Gang screened from 89 to 93 yeah, for four years. And it was a, a... And I don't know that Australia got it when, when Britain... Because it was a BBC show. So anyway, um, the basic scenario was that these were... Basically, it was office as nerd ghetto. So, like, these... Kids were obviously like a bunch of nerds that were causing problems because they were so brainy or in other ways disturbed. And the school 
had sent, given them this side project to kind of distract them, which was to run this junior version of the local newspaper called the Junior Gazette. And um, I guess that's enough of a, pr a, a preview. I think, can we run the press gang intro to kind of set the tone? This is actually the intro from, I think, the second season because Linda has longer hair and stuff. But um, in, in the intro, they still do the same, all the same poses. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like a... It's like a perfect, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know, but I found this show to be enthralling and it completely galvanised me that all I wanted to do from the time this show aired was be an editor and I wanted to be like Linda Day. Um, and I sort of, before this talk, canvassed a few of my female friends who are editors to find out if that was true for them as well. And um, I talked to one in particular, Nadia, who's the editor of Smith Journal, Nadia Sakado, sent through a quote for me to read to you. She says, she, uh, Linda Day taught me it was possible to be obsessively organised, bossy, a stickler for detail, assertive and a real badass. I loved her. I loved and love her for that. She was someone who took no shit and got shit done, which is how I want to be when I grow up, <laughs> which is true. Um, um, my other female editor that I spoke to was Michelle Griffin, who's the state editor for The Age, and she's like, oh, man, I feel... She said she felt really old and, like, she didn't know what press gang was. But then she said, I feel as though the same... Um, an equivalent for me was Jane Craig in Broadcast News, Lois Lane, the husky Margot Kidder version, um, Murphy Brown and the whole Nancy Drew book series. So I feel like maybe Linda Day was, like, the kind of late Gen X version of that. Um, Anyway, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. But I, I would wager that most female editors you'd speak to who are in Generation X would directly cite Linda as the reason for them pursuing their career. <laughs> I'd probably put money on that. <laughs> anyway, um, so I wanted to just um, talk about Linda as my kind of... I've, I've just done a list, a top ten list, um, before we go out with the finale clip, um, ten things about Linda that I think all life lessons that you can learn if you revisit Press Gang. Um, so in no particular order, um, Linda did delegating very well, I thought. She, doesn't, she never micromanaged um, and she never apologised for being in charge. So that's a big life lesson, I think, from Linda. Linda was always about the story. She was always about the story. She was not about the glory, I don't think. She was certainly, like, everyone's boss, but you always felt that she was just looking for the story for the sake of it, which I liked. Um, poofy skirts and cardigans. <laughs> and such an enduring look. Like, you, you know, you could wear that... You'd fit in anywhere in her outfits. The kind of chunky knits. She's always got, like, a kind of... Like a thick stocking. You know, it's practical. It's feminine. It's good. I think you could follow that. Um, nerd first, babe second. <laughs> she was a nerd... And it was funny because I think she did have a crush on Spike and maybe she didn't have, like, the confidence to feel that... But that didn't seem to even bother her. Like, she was always going to get the paper out and then she was going to worry about whether Spike thought she was yeah. <laughs> dateable. And I liked that. Um, phone calls. Always use the phone. And I realised that they didn't have emails back then <laughs> because it was a paper office. Writers. But also, I think there's something to be said... I think Linda used the phone in a way that we all should use the phone. And it's just like, if you have to get something done, don't send someone a passive-aggressive email. Just call them up on your red phone, you know, and you will solve the problem much faster than you would otherwise. Um, so we're halfway through the list. No pandering. She never pandered to the art department, for instance. She was like, 
She was not worried whether the art department were happy or not. She's like, they're the art department. They can do their thing. She wasn't kind of like hovering and worrying whether they were happy or not. I liked that. She didn't pander to them. Um, she said, uh, work with what you've got. I think Linda made the best of Colin. She saw that he got on base and she went with it because <laughs> Colin was all she had. Um, work hard if you're in charge. That's number eight. Linda wasn't never slack. She was always like the last one there with her little lamp and working lamp. Um, also, I wrote down, don't know your place. Because Linda never really kind of accepted that she was supposed to be running like a junior version of the paper. Like she would always try to scoop the main gazette, which I loved. And she also poached their, remember when she poached the phone line? Like she was like, I don't care. If you won't give us a phone, I'm taking your phone line. And um, so I loved that. She didn't kind of like acquiesce to any idea of what the junior gazette should have been or that it was junior. She just kind of made it what she wanted it to be. And the, and the final one I've got is um, one of her faults, which I think we can all learn from, and that is that, that you do have to care about people. Like, if Linda did anything wrong, if anything bad ever happened to Linda, it was because she'd been steamrolling people and stuff. Remember when she overworked Sarah? And then in season two, Sarah had to quit the Gazette because she was, like, wanting to get really good marks. And what did Linda lose? Her top feature writer. So I suppose there's got to be a balance between not pandering <laughs> and then you've got to, to some degree, accept what people's ambitions are. Like, remember when Kenny wanted to become a singer? And, but I, she did turn up to his gig, didn't she? But the whole time, Kenny thought that she wasn't going to turn up. Thanks very much, Kenny. Um, I think that I 100% relate with Linda Day being a formative yeah. role model in my life. <laughs> Actually, I make note in the editorial notes for the um, Melbourne Writers Festival edition of The Lifted Brow. We did that in a week and I was totally channeling her oh, the so whole good. time. Except unlike Linda, I got really ill. But she's incredible. Yeah, and Linda never got sick. I know. Maybe once. Oh, well, clearly she yeah. broke her arm in, what was that, fifth grade? Oh, or yeah. yeah. Um, I love that we learnt a little bit about your taste in men through that segment as well. That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love oh Colin and you and like Colin. Colin. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> but yeah. what I'm interested in in particular, um, whereabouts does Linda Day sit in terms of your all-time television heroines? Where, where would she yeah, be placed? Well, I mean, she's recently been replaced, I think, because she was the top for ages. Um, Which is saying something in it. Yeah. yeah. And maybe still if I revisited the show, maybe she'd go back up. But I think there are two others now that are ahead of her. The first is probably... Um, Sarah Lund from The Killing. In terms of getting stuff done and just wearing gumboots and just like a jumper, you know, <laughs> and like, and then I think Sarah Lund, and I hate to say this is sacrilegious, but I think she's recently taken over for me by Saga Noren from The Bridge, who I think is even more hardcore, but like wears leather pants and drives like a 1977 Porsche 911S, which is a beautiful car. Very large engine, small body. Anyway, <laughs> but I love, but I loved, I love Saga because, I, but I think she is like perhaps a more, perhaps an amplified version of Linda in terms of her position on the like um, spectrum. Like I think Saga is clearly, clearly has Asperger's, but it's never kind of announced or spoken about. It, but it means that she is just incredibly direct in a way that is maybe more, or, or perhaps less stagey and more guileless than Lindsay's directness is. Like, I just love it. Like Saga, like you'll just say, someone will go to Saga, do you want another sandwich? And she'll just go, no, thank you. No, she'll go, no, it wasn't tasty. 
Imagine living like that. That is amazing. <laughs> anyway, I just love Saga. Anyway, so that's I it. I love that yeah. we can chart kind of your career through these really important female role models from television shows. Yeah, and really I feel amazing. like maybe, yeah, it's maybe at the end we can discuss whether there were any of them on non-ABC channels, but I yeah. can't, I feel like that all the formative ones were on the ABC for me, but maybe that's because I only watched it. But anyway, yeah, yeah. so go. Cool, all right, yeah. we might head over to Jane now. Uh, Jane Howard is a freelance culture writer, critic and researcher based in Adelaide and Melbourne. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian Australia and her work has, been, uh, has appeared in publications including the ABC Arts Online, Real Time, Unmagazine and The Lifted Brow. Jane is going to present on ABC 24, so thanks Jane. Thanks. I feel like I'm sort of the non-nostalgic person today. I'm the one that's <laughs> yeah. talking about contemporary so thank you. Yeah. about television. <laughs> um, so I guess my sort of love affair with ABC 24 started when I became a full-time freelance writer, which was two years ago. And I realised that when you're a full-time freelance writer, you need something that's crucially important. To, that means you just can't write. Like, I can't write right now because I need to do something else. And so the first thing I did was read all of the internet. That took a couple of months, but I did it. Um, and so then I had to move on, and I decided to uh, get interested in gymnastics. And I've never done gymnastics. I did, like, kinder gym where I walked up and down the beam, and that was it. But I just fell in love with gymnastics and I can talk you through a routine if you want to show one I can do it uh, I realized <laughs> I realized this had gone too far when I was watching the Olympics and Ali Raisman who was the final women's gymnastics with the American team on the floor landed her last flip and she knew she had won and I knew that they had won and I cried and that was when I knew I needed to just leave the gymnastics alone. That was too far. And so then I decided that it would be Australian politics. And now investing your time in learning about politics is great because it's, it's always changing. It makes you seem smart at parties. And a lot of my editors aren't Australian. They're British because I work for The Guardian. And so I'll have lunch with them. And they become really impressed with me when I can talk to them about Australian politics because they don't always know when I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't work for the politics editors, obviously. They probably would call me out. And there's always something there that, you know, I can grab onto, but if I'm busy, if I'm at the Emerging Writers Festival and I can't pay attention to politics for a while, it's okay because I know that I can go back to it. And ABC 24 is my mainstay. That's where I get most of my news now. Uh, it was established in 2010, but like the internet or mobile phones, I can't really remember a time when it wasn't in my life and it's hard for me to talk about it because it's just so ubiquitously there in my life I was trying to think about what I would talk about and I was thinking oh I'll talk about the shows that I watch but I don't really watch shows on it I just watch it it's just there in my life and most television that I watch now and I think for all of us it's probably true we download it or we stream it and it's not timed it's like oh I got an hour now I can watch the latest episode of whatever but ABC 24 someone else is completely driving the agenda for me I have no choice it's just what's on TV and you know there are my favorites I spend a lot of time traveling and living in hotels and that's where I count on Michael Rowland and Virginia Trolley to keep me company in the morning um, I love 
ABC News Breakfast because it's this weird mix of it's kind of trying to be what a commercial breakfast <laughs> show is, but they're also trying to be the ABC. And it always, they've been doing it for years, but it always feels slightly uncomfortable. They're not, they're not really sure what they're doing. And, and I love that. Um, I love question time because it reminds me that I don't like politics and that it's awful and why is everyone laughing exactly the same and please stop asking Dorothy Dixes and I really actually do need to go write that essay right now. Um, the drum was my mainstay. I watched it every day or I tried to um, but it's been cruelly snatched by ABC One and I think for most people here probably from Melbourne and so it doesn't seem like a big deal. What does it matter if it's on ABC One or ABC 24? But for South Australians, it makes a difference. There's this strange tyranny of distance that happens between the East Coast and the other states where we're always a step out of time with Eastern Standard Time and the world is smaller when Melbourne is an hour away on an aeroplane or it's a second away in a tweet. But the next time any of you are tweeting MasterChef or the latest Chappelle Corby movie, just spare a thought for all of us that are in South Australia and we're half an hour behind your tweets and we'll never, oh. ever catch up. It's never going to happen. And I don't think I ever really tweeted the drum, maybe occasionally, but there was the thought that I could have because it was on ABC 24. And if I tweeted it and someone else was watching it and they were tweeting about it, we were tweeting about the same thing at the same time. And there's this fleeting feeling that we're all here together, which, of course, brings me to Q&A. Sweet, sweet, ABC One and ABC 24 simulcast Q&A. You can watch it on ABC One in South Australia and tweet half an hour behind like a pansy, or you can watch it on ABC 24 and feel like you're in step with the world. It's a terrible world, to be sure. It's an awful, awful world, which just makes you feel icky and slightly gross, and I don't know why. I'd subject myself to it, but I do. Um, I think when life expectancy amongst the politically engaged inexplicably plummets, scientists will point to the years-long summation of tiny brain aneurysms that happen <laughs> while we all watch Q&A and they'll be like, oh, that was it. It's, it's a terrible hour. Uh, I feel we have three options when we're watching Q&A, um, all of which I variously participate in on different days. Number one, there's watch Q&A with Twitter open. This may involve tweeting or it may not. Some people, obviously, choose to engage only in the hope that they'll get a tweet on screen. And I can't decide if that would be brilliant or terrifying. I don't tweet much while I'm watching it um, just because I'm scared who's going to follow on that tag and pounce on me. Um, option number two is having Twitter open but not watching Q&A and then trying to decipher what on earth is going on. And step number three is to just step away. Uh, I suppose that there are two more options. There must be people who watch Q&A and don't tweet. And the fact that they put it on iView suggests that people watch it on iView, but I, I don't know who those people are. So this past Monday, I didn't get to watch it on TV because I was on a tram coming back from the Emerging Writer, Writers Festival's Emerging Q&A. And so I partook in option number two, which is reading Twitter and trying to figure out what's going on. And from my understanding, and please, I hope you watch the show so you can know what actually happened. But my understanding of what happened on Q&A on Monday were three main facts. Number one, we all need to pay a $7 co-payment to watch the ABC. <laughs> Number two, schools will now have clowns instead of chaplains. 
And number three, a man wore a hat. <laughs> that was the most tweeted about thing on my timeline. It was just this stream of people being, why are you wearing a hat? Take your hat off. That's why you get a PhD, so you can wear a hat. That guy, yeah, he was wearing a hat. And so where would we be without this vital public service? Um, the other joy that ABC24 can give us who don't live on the East Coast are those glittering moments of fame when our politicians are temporarily the most newsworthy in the nation. That's like when the South Australian Labor Party won the unwinnable election, making us the only Labor state in the country. Or when a former Liberal leader gets sick of 12 years on opposition and decides to join the Labor front bench. We might not have much. But every now and then, we have the strangest politics in the nation. And ABC 24 is going to let everyone know about it and force you all to watch our slightly ramshackle press conferences, which probably no one else can follow and will lead to all of my friends going, so what were you tweeting about today? Um, well, like everywhere, the ABC 24 can feel a little too much like men in suits talking to men in suits about men in suits. I know soon enough. I'll see one of my favourite politi female political journalists on the television. Sometimes they're women in suits, sometimes they're in a snazzy outfit, and sometimes they're in a vintage frock, but they're still a breath of fresh air. It's the aforementioned Trioli in the mornings, or it was Julia Bard in the afternoon. It's Ross Childs or Julie Doyle talking to Lyndall Curtis or Latika Burke over lunch. It's Annabelle Crabb on a panel, or it's Lee Sales or Sarah Ferguson, as 7.30 is repeated at times that certainly aren't 7.30, in a desperate attempt to fill in 24 hours. Uh, in a world where the 24-hour news cycle is quite rightly criticised for manufacturing stories and outrage and a never-ending quest for content and ratings and ratings and content, maybe I'm being kind or maybe I'm being naive, but I feel like, the ABC, I feel like ABC 24 has escaped most of the traps of needing to provide a constant stream of information. Yeah, some stories don't need to be repeated ad nauseum, but is, the question, is, but is the channel made so people can dip in and out, putting it on just while they dust the lounge room or make a cup of tea? Or is it for those who want to watch it all day? On big political days, the days that there's an election or a spill, there's something exciting about the rolling coverage. And on quiet days, I personally find something quite enjoyable in watching Mal Malcolm Turnbull say it borders on the demented half a dozen times in two hours. I don't know if... ABC 24 will always be my distraction. I could possibly do something more useful with my time for my particular job, like study French avant-garde theatre or learn Russian so I can better understand Chekhov. But then again, theatre should be of the world that we live in as much as politics should be. And so spending so much time with ABC 24 kind of makes sense. If I do move on or if it moves on from us with hostile budgetary environments, I don't think it's something I'll look back on with the nostalgia that I remember Press Gang or Inspector Gadget, but it's, that's because it's messy. It's background noise to everything else. It's not something that I miss when I'm not watching it, but it's something that I'm always happy to settle back down into. Today, I was finishing figuring out what I was going to say to you all tonight, and I turned on ABC 24, and it was the National Press Club. Uh, John Howard, who is of no relation, was halfway through a speech and I didn't really know what he was talking about. I opened Twitter and I opened Daniel Hurst and Catherine Murphy on Politics Live on The Guardian and I felt okay that I wasn't sure what was going on. I feel like that pretty frequently still when I watch ABC 24. I'm quite content to dip my toes in, make some lunch and let other people make sense of it all. 
all while feeling quite comforted that so much political coverage should exist at all. Thanks. <laughs> That's really interesting. I don't watch ABC 24 nearly as much as you, and I'm not sure if any of you guys, you guys do, but I really like that you framed it as kind of a love affair and, again, talking about it in terms of your own career in the arts and mm -hmm. ABC, they, like, which is something we can probably... Well, I was thinking about, yeah, with, with Linda, and it's, like, it's the women that I keep on coming back to, and I sort of, I feel like I have a weird inflated sense of how many women are on it. I think if I actually counted or actually thought about it, I think we would find there are more men. But in my head, I just keep on thinking about the women political journos, and that's really influenced the way that I think of myself as a writer. Yeah, and you've yeah. talked about kind of the uncertain budget climate that ABC finds itself in. Yeah. What will you do if ABC 24 goes away? Maybe Where I just would have you to learn Russian? I don't. Know. I mean, I don't know if it's. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a long-term solution. I feel like maybe with the gymnastics, I'll reach my moment when I'm watching Question Time and I start crying. I'm like, okay, right. I need something new now. I don't but I, I like it for now. So there wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't then commit to ABC One and just have that going, or you wouldn't find too another. Much like Midsummer Murders on yeah. ABC One. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't find kind of another news source. You think that ABC Twenty Four is your ABC one and only. It's my one and only. Oh, yeah. that's really lovely. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you for that. Uh, our next speaker is Max Olinick. Uh, he's a writer and skateboarder from Melbourne. He's a regular columnist for the Vice, The Age and Slam Skateboarding Magazine, as well as a bunch of other stuff. He's a former edit uh, assistant editor at 3000 and Broadsheet and he's now creative director at The Good Copy. He also runs a clothing label called Note to Self and maintains an, an accompanying blog which combines his writing and photography. Max is going to have a chat tonight about The Late Show. So, yeah. <laughs> Yay. Um, thank you. And... Uh, I actually watch most of the shows I watch on ABC now is M Midsummer Murders, <laughs> <laughs> and really? it's equivalent. Yeah, I love them. It's like it's like having a bath. Yeah, it's fantastic. That that area is yeah. very highly murdered. Um, kind of like Adelaide. Yeah, it's very similar to Adelaide. Yeah, they could do one on Adelaide. Um, I have um, like probably all of us, uh, always loved uh, comedy and um, particularly ensemble groups like um, when people get together. I just think that when groups of friends or people who get along get together and try and make funny stuff, it's, it's actually sort of one of the most magic things that can occur between groups of people. And um, yeah, when they make each other laugh, I, I just really... I think there's, there's this energy generated by it that is really fantastic. And um, growing up, um, we had a collection of records that we could listen to. And like Penny, I couldn't watch um, the commercial channels, so I was sort of limited to ABC. And I also I was in the country, so we had Channel 8, which was this strange amalgamation of all the commercial channels, which was terrible. <laughs> um, but ABC um, was great. But the records was where I got the best comedy from and my favourite one um, was uh, by Derek and Clive which was uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and it was sort of their drunken alter egos and they just basically get really drunk and record which seemed semi-planned skits that would turn into songs and they were really dirty and incredible but it was this sort of, I could tell that at least Peter Cook was an intellectual but it was beyond being clever. It was this space that they went into where they were trying to make each other laugh and they didn't know what the, next per what 
they would say to each other, but each thing would be funnier than the next. And it would just sort of take it into this weird realm where no one knew what was going to happen. And it, I just found it incredibly thrilling and hilarious. And I feel like The Late Show did that at times. And it was Australian. And it was just amazing. Um, it, 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 was, it was made up by a group of friends, uh, the D generation, from who were mainly from Melbourne University. And um, it only ran for two, year, to, for two seasons, from uh, July 1992 to October 1993. The D Generation did stuff before that, and of course they'd gone on to do other stuff after that. But um, I was surprised when I was researching yeah. to do this talk that it only ran for that, from 92 to 93. Like, mm. it felt like it went for yeah. five years or something, because it changed a lot, and it just felt like it was such a presence in my life and such a formative thing that, yeah, it was quite important to me, I think. The, I don't really normally go in for nostalgic things, but the, the Late Show was, it was just so good. Um, there was this group, it was, uh, the leader was Rob Sitch, um, and he was this sort of, he was always the one who would be... Did you keep, hear Rob Sitch? Yeah. <laughs> he, would keep, he would say something... And then he would wait for the effect on everyone else and everyone would start laughing and stuff, but he'd just keep, sort of keep his cool, but you knew that he was laughing as well. And it was so funny. Um, and his wife, Jane Kennedy, was also a part of the group and she was also very funny, um, but not really featured that much in the show. It was always sort of like, oh, where's Jane? And whenever she was on, she was really funny. And then there's Tony Martin, who is my favourite. And he was incredible at improvising. He was very funny anyway, but he would do little things during his performances that would let you know that he just, it just occurred to him to say that. He was doing, there was one piece he did, and I can't remember what it was about, but he was like, I was walking with my, I think it was his nephew, I was walking with my nephew and he held his hand out to the side and to indicate, you know, the younger nephew. And he's like, yeah, he just walks around with his hand like that. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it just, it just occurred to him. <laughs> to say that, he's so clever. And, um, and then there was Mick Malloy, who was the larrikin. He was sort of the guy, like the popular guy. Um, and he, he went out with Sophie Lee, the, oh, yeah. the Disney presenter and stuff. And I couldn't really relate to Mick, but it seemed like <laughs> everyone liked him. So I, I went in for him. Uh, Judith Lucy was a part. I think he, she came on in the second season, and she was fantastic. She had an amazing chemistry with Mick, if anyone noticed. Um, she was funnier than everyone, I think. Um, then uh, Tom Gleisner was not that funny. Um, <laughs> but you got the feeling he was a really good comedy writer. Like it was not his necessarily his place to be in front of the camera. Um, Jason Stevens, he was a part of it. <laughs> and, he was actually quite funny. He was actually quite funny in his own way, but he just performed the jokes, and I, I just felt like everyone else wrote, wrote oh, I'm sorry, Jason, I'm probably fantastic. Uh, Santo uh, Chalaro, I think is how you pronounce his name. He was a lovable clown, and um, he was also another favourite of all the cast, I think, and he was very good. He was one half of Graham and the Colonel, which was one of the best. Um, yeah, the best bits were when they made each other laugh, and... They tried to hold it together, and Graham and the Colonel, which were the sports presenters who came on at the end, and they had the blonde wigs, and they would just talk about their, their racehorse duffel coat supreme. Was that their, was that them, or was that Roy and HG? I can't remember. Like they're quite similar characters, um, but then they'd whenever um, Rob would say something that would make them laugh, he'd, they'd, he'd 
pick up a piece of paper and throw it behind him. <laughs> and they just sort of look at when you do that with his finger. Um, I just loved that. Um, they had regular segments. Um, one of my favourites was uh, Shit Scared, which he was a uh, stuntman. And he was terrible. Um, but he just, he was always very serious and he had his great stunt lined up, but his assistant Mick with the silver helmet would always stuff things up. He got run over by a van once and, oh, and he was pretending to be a karate expert. Oh, it's just pretty bad. But there was a, and then there was this fantastic, um, the dubbing over of old shows, show um, segments, which was great. Uh, in the second season, it was Barjas, which was the sort of the fart joke, um, heavy, um, <laughs> very popular bit. Um, it was a take on, uh, it, it was using footage from the 70s cop show, Bluey, but just, it was just basically all about farts and eating. But I actually prefer the olden days, which was from the first season, and um, it was it was genius. The, the amount of work that went into creating this cut-up sections from the show uh, Rush, uh, it was a black and white historical drama from the 70s as well. Um, they created this amazing story, and you just got a little um, three-minute, bit every week. Um, it was of the, the Goldfields and it starred um, Governor Frontbottom <laughs> and Sergeant Olden and uh, Judge Mutton Chops. And it was like all of The Late Show, it didn't always hit the mark, but when it did, it was just fantastic. I still, I have the video and I'd love to watch it occasionally. Um, I was... I'm always surprised when I revisit The Late Show um, how much of that, those jokes and that approach to trying to be funny I've incorporated in my life ever since. Um, like certain jokes that I'd forget my own testicles if they weren't screwed on, that kind of thing. And just that approach to sort of crappy jokes I felt was really cool, like to, to actually own those terrible jokes. Um, there, there were other comedy shows um, produced in Australia around that time. It was sort of quite a good time for comedy in Australia. Um, fast forward, full frontal, these kind of things. But I, my opinion is, compared to The Late Show, they all seem pretty lame. Like, I think The Late Show was really cool. Like, I would, I would have loved to get one of those hats that said The Late Show on it. And um, I just thought they were, they were the best. I, I lived in the country and... Um, I didn't. I, I would have loved to. It, it made me want to move to Melbourne. It made me think, oh, there's something going on there. And, you know, maybe you could go to a comedy club and see that kind of stuff going on at night time. And, but I couldn't, obviously. But I could tune in every week, and it was this real sort of lifeline to something to aspire to. And, you know, friends who I might meet later down the track. And it just seemed so powerful for these guys all to know each other. Um, I, I got the feeling that they had a lot of freedom. Um, making The Late Show, um, that the ABC just sort of let them go. And again, like sometimes they didn't always hit the mark, but I think when they did it was incredible. And I think that's sort of a sign of what, how things should go. Like if you get a good group of creative people, there should be a structure built up around it and then everything should just sort of move back from that and, and not interfere with it. And I think that's really lovely when that happens. Um, it's quite concerning. I don't think that really happens that much these days. It's either people who are just incredibly funny anyway and they'll just do it no matter what or it's just sort of mediocre and a bit whatever, you know. Um, yeah. 
so I'm really concerned if they they don't have that because they could have made that on channel 31 or something I guess or just put it on the internet which you know people do now um, so yeah everything's fine don't worry about it um, <laughs> the um, most of the degeneration um, have gone on to become sort of linchpins of the Australian comedy scene and sort of beyond that as well um, they do working dog is their production company um, Frontline was a, a really big thing. It was on the ABC. Um, that was really clever. Um, the Castle um, was a fantastic film, I thought. Um, the Dish, not so good. Pretty good. Um, Thank God You're Here was also quite a good show, I think. Um, Any Questions for Ben was a pretty shit film that they made. Um, the Panel was interesting for a while, but I feel like they've... Yeah, they're maybe not so relevant anymore, but at this point they were really, really great. And... Um, one of my favourite um, segments on The Late Show would be when they'd hit the streets and do Vox Pops. Um, and, yeah, I, again, it's, uh, I'm going to play a clip, which is one of my favourite ones, of uh, Tony Martin and Mick Malloy hitting some uh, shops on Sydney Road and around Melbourne and um, with Santo on the camera, who's also sort of playing a part. But it's incredible watching Tony think on his feet and... Um, We've, sent, we've tried it since. Penny and I worked together on the good copy. Um, we tried to do a clip sort of inspired by this. It's much harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah, but again, moments of brilliance. In terms of Australian comedy, like you say you watch ABC for Midsummer Murders, maybe now more than anything else. Do you watch any Australian comedy on ABC or anywhere else generally? Yeah, well, uh, there's the things job. like the Moody's and the, there was the Problems show uh, that was on last year. Uh, what else is funny? <laughs> yeah, see, this is, yeah. That's the Sorry. interesting thing. What's that? Upper Middle Bogan, yeah, not bad. Yeah, that stuff is pretty good. Like, they're trying to do good stuff and it's, yeah, it gets pretty good. But you're not so it's, much a fan yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's not that as funny yeah. as that, you know? Yeah. It, it, I mean... Yeah, I, 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 I feel like they're producing stuff and it's getting there, but I don't think they're given enough freedom. And yeah. I've spoken to yeah. people who've, who've worked on these shows and, um, and, and it's all about budgets and it's all about pitching something and, and it's all about them squeezing it into their, their schedule and it's harsh. Oh, well, like Wilfred, that was incredible, wasn't it? And yeah. the Chris Lilly stuff is really good. Um, some of it. Some yeah, of it. Some of it. Um, yeah. I, I kind of like it. Uh, the new one. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. You're that guy. <laughs> it's pretty funny. The, the, oh, yeah, what, did the what, did, what did the what did the moon say to the window? Or the window say to the moon? Get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good joke. Yeah. A good yeah. Stand up. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, I think it's that freedom yeah. that they're not given anymore. Yeah. Like, yeah. to be... Whatever they and want. it'll be interesting to watch that landscape develop and change and perhaps even become more restrictive yeah. as time goes on, which is kind of Somewhat sad. interesting. Yeah. yeah. But, um, okay, we'll head over to Toby. Toby Feely is Assistant Editor at the Art Guide Australia and a freelance writer whose work has appeared in Smith Journal, Vice, 3000, Broadsheet and Charter Magazine. His radio story, okay, the isolation, solitude, confinement, happiness, freedom domain aired on Radio That's National cool. last week. I'm really proud of myself for getting through that. Um, also, he's got a cold at the moment. Aww. Yeah, getting everyone on side, I'm sure. Uh, Toby's going to be talking about that total 
absolute ABC Kids classic, Mr. Squiggles. So I'll hand it over to Toby. Oh, here we go. Oh, fancy, <laughs> fancy PowerPoint and everything. Um, yeah, Mr. Oh. Squiggle. Hey, buddy. Oh. Uh, this is Mr. Squiggle. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, for those of you who yeah, don't know Mr. Squiggle, he's the man from the moon. Um, he's, a, he's a puppet with a pencil for a nose. Um, and he hung out with a grumpy blackboard, a snail called Gus, and a steam shoveler that blew smoke out of his nose. Um, the way it worked is each episode, he'd, um, he'd get into his rocket um, on the moon, he'd fly to the ABC studios, and each episode, a, a child like Elizabeth would um, send through a squiggle like this, and Mr. Squiggle would turn um, those squiggles into drawings. Um, more impressive than turning squiggles into drawings was how um, Mr. Squiggle managed to turn um, scant resources and all these limitations into iconic television. So I'll explain. This is him. Um, Jolly, Jolly's his first name. Uh, Mr. Jolly Squiggle. He, yeah, Jolly. <laughs> um, yeah, so he first appeared on ABC on July 1st, 1959. So his um, creator, um, Norman Hedrington, um, had his puppets on ABC's very first night of broadcasting in 1956. Um, but Mr. Squiggle was only meant to be a, a temporary fill-in, uh, and he was only given a six-week trial. Um, and Norman had, well, so just one week notice before the show went to air. Um, after that, it went on to air for 40 years, um, yeah, so it's one of the longest um, running children's shows in Australia and the world. Um, at the time, money was incredibly tight at the ABC. So one of the directors of children's programs said for a single episode of a commercial children's show like um, the Mickey Mouse Club, um, they could play with around £27,000. Um, for Mr. Squiggle, that was six months of budget. So Mr. Squiggle was very cheap to produce, but what he did was instead of um, the cheapness being gimmicky, um, they used these cut corners to make it part of its distinctive style. So this is his hat. Um, <laughs> it's a very long hat. Um, and the reason his hat was so long was Norman was operating Mr. Squiggle from above. And to be able to draw, he had to sort of grab onto that hat. So if you watch an episode, you'll never see the top of the hat while he's drawing. Uh, another one, we are discussing whether people would notice, he did his drawings upside down. Yeah, and at the end, you know, he'd go upside down, upside down, and you'd flip it over. Um, this was because, like I said, Norman was above operating, so from where he was looking, it was the right way up. <laughs> so that, that's just the limitations. Um, what he actually did was, was pretty amazing. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about his artistic contributions. <laughs> There's Mr. Squiggle, he's the modernist from the moon. Um, he had a 40-year-long practice. He was very active. So, that, so that's over, um, yeah, 250 works per year. It's very prolific. Um, 
And so I'm just going to talk about the influences for a bit longer, as you can see. Um, this is an example of the exquisite corpse. Uh, this was a parlor game invented by the Surrealists um, sometime in the 20s. Uh, and in this game, people would take turns finishing a drawing, which was, you know, it's essentially what Mr. Squiggle was doing. Um, and more than just the technique, some of um, Mr. Squiggle's subject matter was very um, surreal as well. So I've made a few selections. Uh, this one. Uh, <laughs> some of these need explanations. This is a... This is a frog using a trumpet so that when he's underwater, he can breathe through the trumpet. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. This, if you haven't guessed, is a dog with a balloon and a yo-yo, and he has a beard. Um, but this one might seem familiar. If you, this is Griggle. Yeah, look at that smug look. He's so happy. <laughs> Yeah, so this might, if you look here, that was the slide I showed earlier. So Mr. Squiggle would often do more than one um, image in the single drawing. Uh, and that is also another surrealist technique from <laughs> Dali. So we've got the swans, but at the bottom it's the elephants. But the next one, sorry, the next one is my favorite. This one needs a big explanation. <laughs> It's a great one. Um, it's, so I'm just going to use his words exactly. Um, the fish is balancing on a surf ski, and the surf ski is balancing on a seal's nose, and the seal is balancing on a ping pong ball, which he's using as a roller skate, and there's a tomato balanced on top of the fish's nose. Um, what's you know, pretty amazing about this, apart from that, um, is, is this economy with lines and his ability to say so much with so little, which bears comparison to not another surrealist, but another artist, is uh, Pablo Picasso. So this is resemblance. Um, but it's not just, you know, his artistic contribution. He was also, um, yeah, the man from the moon, from the man from the moon. He was um, Australia's first um, science fiction character on TV. Um, from 1959. His rocket was one of Australia's earliest imaginings of a rocket. Um, and this is because Norman's wife, who wrote the scripts, uh, was a science fiction fan. And over the course of his career, Mr. Squiggle was a um, guest of honour at two science fiction conventions. And they introduced him on stage as Australia's first astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Mr. Squiggle. So there's lots of, you know, Mr. Squiggle... Mr. God damn, Mr. Squiggle. Yeah, so there's lots of ways you can look at Mr. Squiggle's contribution to society. So I've got a few more about his legacy. He's got, he's had a stamp. Uh, on the right, on the right, you're right. Um, there's three shops in Melbourne where you can get a Mr. Squiggle costume. Uh, that T-shirt on the top, if you can't read it, says, Mr. Squiggle taught me how to draw, which is pretty sweet. Um, and at the bottom, that's the Google Doodle from just last week. Uh, I think it was May 29. So it, was, um, it would have been Norman's 93rd birthday, but he passed away. Um, I was also going to include an image of 
there was a BuzzFeed quiz, which missed the squiggle character a year, but, but everything, yeah, has a BuzzFeed quiz now. <laughs> um, so, you know, from this we can see there's a whole bunch of, um, yeah, different legacies he's had, but it doesn't really explain how a show that was just a temporary fill-in um, ran for 40 years and still is remembered and celebrated today. Um, my brother is, he was two, when Mr. Squiggle was cancelled in 1999, uh, and he has no idea who Mr. Squiggle is. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so I sat him down and I, I showed him some clips and explained to him how it happened. And he said it sounded a bit familiar, because he is, um, he's in year 12 at the moment and recently did a, an occupational test to find out what career suited him. Uh, it's called the Morrisby Profile Test. Uh, and this was one of the sections. In the section. With that, well, this is, yeah, you're supposed to, it's a Mr. Squiggle, you're supposed to turn into a drawing. This is only an artistic impression. Um, I emailed the people who administered the test and said, I'm doing a presentation on Mr. Squiggle, and they didn't send uh, an exact copy, but this is the idea. Um, but I did hear back from an occupational psychologist who works there, and he explained to me what doing a squiggle um, tells you about your psychological status, which I think is very interesting when you're just considering Mr. Squiggle in general. So he said, this test has nothing to do with artistic ability. The drawing test, which is called uh, speed test for bees, actually a test of ideational fluency, uh, the fluency with which we can generate ideas under pressure. So it provides information about initiative, decisiveness, and external confidence. So I think, yeah, that's the main lesson of Mr. Squiggle. Um, yeah, for 40 years, Mr. Squiggle had, you know, the initiative, decisiveness, and external confidence to turn these random shapes into drawings. Um, his creator, Norman, uh, had the initiative, decisiveness, and external confidence to turn what was supposed to be a temporary show into one of the world's longest-running um, children's programs. Um, I think that's, you know, an important lesson all around is, you know, no matter what you're doing, uh, if it's squiggling or something else, um, everything is, is to a large extent improvised, um, and you can only deal with the shapes you get, um, you know, but as long as you've got, you know, the initiative, decisiveness, and external confidence, it's um, just joining lines. That's it. Thank you. That's I'm just going to, yeah, I know. Um, I think I'm, I'm just going to speak on behalf of maybe the couch and perhaps you guys. You just blew my tiny mind. Oh, my God, for sure. Like, the breaking of the fourth wall thing and finding out about the door, that stung a little bit, I'm not going to lie. But, oh, my God, it's so amazing. Um, personally, I just want to bring it back to Blackboard because... For me, he's one of the most misunderstood characters. He's getting his face drawn on and basically suffocated all the time. He's allowed to be grumpy. What do you feel about Blackboard? Give us a little well, bit. No, I yeah. totally agree. The saddest thing is um, he, he only had one functional eye. Oh. It's, it's hard to notice. It's a bit sad. Um, 
No, I, I think it was it was probably there wasn't the budget for, <laughs> for two eyes. <laughs> 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 on, on Mr. Blackboard, there was a rumour at my high school that one of the science teachers was Mr. Blackboard. <laughs> had done the voice for Mr. Blackboard. And then, but then I found out that, so my high school sort of took up about like three quarters of a block and on the other quarter of the block was another high school. And the same rumour was in that high school, one of their oh, science So I don't know if that was a weird Adelaide thing that every school had the There must rumor. have been some guy in Adelaide there that was... There must have been someone at some yeah. point. Or it's just yeah. testament to the fact that Mr. School is such yeah. an influential show. Like, you're in high school and you're still, you know, yeah. holding but on to that. But wasn't it the same guy that did all the blackboard and all the puppets? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it was, yeah. it was yeah. Norman. It was Norman. Waking us up here. It was all Norman. But, but Mr. the blackboard did it sometimes interrupt... Was did he? Because he, he oh. got oh. Oh. So maybe there was another dude. I know he did Squiggle, Gus the Snail. Maybe Blackboard was your teacher. Steam shovel. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the other teacher. Yeah, the other one. <laughs> one actually, of the Yeah, guys. and I want to get Penny to talk a little bit about your thoughts about the rocket because we had a bit of a conversation mm. before oh, yeah. we got up. I was up always really office. disturbed by the rocket because, and I was just saying because, like, even as a child, I was like, this rocket can't travel in space. Like, first of all, it's not. <laughs> Like, um, it's not airtight, you know, because you can see the hole anyway. And then the other thing is that Mr. Squiggle can't get out of his rocket, like, unassisted. <laughs> so you have to assume that there's, like, a, hopefully someone at the other end, well, like, on the at, moon. He lived at 93 Crescent Way, so that implies there are at least 92. But we didn't know that. We just knew he was from the moon. And I just pictured him going back there and being unable to, like, get his nose out. Yeah, about the way that the, yeah, the hinge works, that he'd have to move his head a little bit as the hinge comes off because his nose is not that long. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He sort of had to go... Because he remembered his chain and she would like... It's just... Ugh. Anyway. Uh, let's see if I yeah. maybe, maybe we'll um, open it up to the audience for some questions. There'll be micro a microphone. So if you just want to <laughs> pop your hand up and Sean can come over so we can get it recorded for the podcast. Um, are there any oh, there's one. questions? There's one up there. Mine's not a question. I just wanted to add that um, Mr. Squiggle was the longest running science fiction show in the world when it ended. What was that? Wow. <laughs> science fiction. I was saying earlier, I mean, I, I, someone said wow. that to me the other night. So I was coming on this panel and someone else was talking about Mr. Squiggle. And they're like, oh, you know, that's the longest running science fiction. I was like, oh, I feel like that's stretching a bit. And then I got this whole but, like, like, speech about, no, no, it was science fiction. And yeah, well, yeah. he was clearly the proved the point. Yeah. You've got That's your countdown shirt on as well. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it's awesome. One thing with Press Gang, I know that when I was a kid, do you remember the double episode? Oh my oh, God. Yes. Can I just interject here? Yeah. No. Or do you want to say? Because I just want to say, I love that double episode so much that I did like, I kind of mixed up, you know, the Heather's lunchtime poll? But I did like a Heather's lunchtime poll about the double, so halfway between the episodes. I polled like the whole school to figure out, <laughs> to find out who they thought was dead. Yeah. Well, who did you think was dead? I don't remember. I just remember actually, I think, swearing at the TV for the first <laughs> time ever because it was the first clip, like, apart from Doctor Who, you were used to watching cliffhangers. But for yeah. Press Gang to actually have such a massive cliffhanger yeah. was this kind of ridiculously emotional moment where I'm just going, what do you mean I actually have to wait a whole week? What? <laughs> yeah. Which in itself... Or was it like over a weekend or something? Was it like they showed it on the Friday and, and then, then it was the Monday? Monday? Was that Probably. it? No, or the Thursday? Thursday, because things changed no, on a Friday. A 
myself brings up yeah. an interesting question about why are we so nostalgic about it? Is it just the quality of the television shows that we had and the fact that we were children and we grew up? Or is it the fact that the way we watch television now has completely changed and, and we can access it when we want rather than just getting home at 3 45 yeah. or whatever from school and having that being there for us. Because that was disastrous. Like, I'm sure you know how it would have felt if you'd missed an episode of Press Gang. Like, that's it. Tears. It's gone. Yeah. Gone. You know, and what do you do? And I love that. And people can't. Clearly, you, you move on eventually. <laughs> people don't appreciate that. Anyway. <laughs> there was this beautiful, there was this weird <laughs> moment. And I, like, I don't think everybody was captured by the ABC, but when, uh, like, full episode recaps started to happen on the internet but before TV shows were on the internet. And so if you missed an episode, you would read like 20 page recaps. Did oh you yeah. Do that? No, I didn't do I that. Did I did it. I was like read this like whole recap of like the episode of the OC that I missed. Yeah. Like that was really important before you yeah. could catch up. It was I feel like there's a huge gulf now like for people like, I made a mistake because we called our writing studio the good copy. And I'm sure you guys remember the, at school writing the good copy. Like, remember before you did it on the computer? Oh, yeah. You'd, like, write the draft and then you'd be like, have you finished your, hey, Max, have you finished your good copy yet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now we realise that no one knows what that is. <laughs> that's not even a thing anymore, you know. And that's why I feel like such a bond with people that yeah. remember Press Gang because that whole environment of even making a newspaper is so alien to people now like that idea that you wouldn't have a computer yeah. like and even at the time I was like I wish that they'd elaborated on it more because I did grow up handwriting essays and stuff and computers were a big deal to me when they came in I was like in year 11 or something but mm -hmm. I remember wondering how does Sarah get like I see her on the typewriter but how I wish they'd done more of that like how <laughs> did they get Sarah's article from mm. Did you ever wonder that, how, from the typewriter type to the, the actual? And anyway, well, yeah. I'm rambling. A whole show about Sorry. typesetting. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spin-off. Spin-off show, yeah. That'd be good. And then maybe there'll be the art department. Yeah. So much potential. Great? It's probably fan fiction out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, in regards to the degeneration and yeah. the late show, I've got a pretty clear memory of degeneration specials from before they had the late show. Yeah. So with Rob Sitch, Tony Martin and those guys, weren't those the second generation? I think of they were, the yeah. There were people before and they became the fast forward and all that the kind of stuff, right? The fast forward guys, yeah. So yeah. I was just wondering how they transitioned into the late show. And I was also wondering what your opinion was on the Doug Anthony All-Stars Capital, which followed on after it. I love the big gig. Um, and uh, I thought that the big gig had that really sort of raw quality about it and that the, the Doug Anthony All-Stars were like the what will they do this week kind of thing. It was really amazing. Um, and those guys have all gone on to do various things in the media and like isn't um, Richard like one of the directors of the ABC or something? Or, like he's, yeah. Do you know Tim Ferguson teaches comedy now at RMIT? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I interviewed him. He's How fantastic. do you teach comedy? That's what I said to him. Well, he was like, well, you should come to my course. Yeah, come and get yeah. <laughs> I could do it. But yeah, there was the degeneration before The Late Show and, and I guess where I'm coming from is that where I came in, I was sort of 12 years old or something like that and it was just like, what is this? And I loved... I don't know how it transitioned. Like, were they Melbourne Uni students as well or something? Maybe someone knows. RMIT. Yeah. What, the first gen? Well, no. uh, We've got fact checkers up there. <laughs> okay, here we go. I 
Okay. Right. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry if I got all the facts wrong. I, I just based it on um, sort of like, yeah, as I was away from it and um, it sounded... They were definitely Melbourne University. Okay. Yeah. And they were working on uh, Triple M, on a radio breakfast show. That's... Oh, when it was, yeah, when it was Eon <laughs> FM, what of course. There was Eon FM first. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I wonder if there's tapes of all that. Yeah. Oh, there would be. Oh, and they wow. brought out a single and stuff. But they did... Oh, the... Um, the, 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 the yeah. What was it called? What Five was in it a called? row. Five in a row, They yeah. did a pilot. They did pilots on Channel 7 first. And uh, they didn't want to give them a TV show and the ABC did. So And that's that's yeah. the, the yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I know too much. Does anyone know why it was axed? Them. Like, why did they only get two seasons? Does anyone know that? No. It felt like it kind of run its course. Like it felt like it had been on for a while. I think that's a really beautiful thing about a lot of. Huh? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of lot of back chat correspondence. I'm sure. I think that's a really beautiful thing about a lot of ABC programs, like ones that were produced in Australia, that they felt like they just made as many episodes as they needed to, and then they stopped. They. I feel like a lot of those old. Except shows. Roger Ramjet. Well, that was American. Well, that was American. But in terms of Australia, and that's really interesting you say that because yeah. you're still saying that they had this this ground to be able to like work and develop their craft and what they're interested mm. in, but they're still prolific in the industry. And, mm. and do you think, do, do any of you have an opinion on whether you think that there is a generation that's doing that now and that will still filter through or because yeah. the climate's changed so significantly that that's just not possible? Oh, well, they will. And I forgot to mention The Chaser when um, we were talking about what's funny now and, um, and they've obviously sort of... But are they funny now? Or were they funny? I don't think The Chaser was ever as funny as The Late. Well, it was never as funny as... Well, it had moments of like, absolute hilarity, though. Like, sometimes I feel like the chaser was so excited. I hope there's no one from the chaser here, but I'm just going to say it. I feel like the chaser were always so um, kind of proud of themselves for having, like, busted through the entrance to mm. the Olympics or something, you know, yeah. that well, they never actually did the comedy part. Like, they thought it was enough just to do the stunt part. I guess so. And there but was the, sort of yeah. too much ego or something. Oh, there was some was really it? funny stuff. Was there? Um, yeah, but... The, sorry? Yeah, oh, yeah, so yeah. I, although I do take issue with some of the Chase's musical stuff. Um, <laughs> but, they, that, but they, yeah, they're very clever and, and sort of had that sort of same group magic about them, I think, which was really cool. Um, but Doug Anthony All-Stars were, were amazing. I thought they were incredible and Dust Capital was really cool. Um, but so stylized and quite political and quite angry. I, was, I really related to The Late Show in that they were just... A bunch of guys and girls. Dudes having lols. Yeah, lols. Yeah. There's a question so, up there. But Penny, what about CNNNN? Because as a New Zealander who didn't grow up with Mr Squiggle, sadly, um, <laughs> ABC, my first contact was visiting my sister and watching taped episodes of CNNNN. I've yeah. only seen that on YouTube. Yeah, that Can was you before elaborate? The Chaser, right? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's The Chaser, but I think because they're playing the parts of these smug news anchors, it, that the smugness came through in the roles that they were playing and s instead of in the kind of arrogance. And I'm too young delivery. for oh, yeah. that, but I, like, CNN, I think was the first, I think that was the first satirical TV series that I mm. watched. And I don't, I don't remember if my parents let me watch it or I watched it sort of illicitly, but that was, I thought that was a hugely um, interesting show and, and probably really shaped my sort of political thinking at that age. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And things like the, that introduced me to things like Today Tonight and... A current affair. Yeah. The version, I can't remember what it was called, the CNNN version. What was that? Or did you remember it? The, but anyway, they did the, is this Australia's worst mum? She 
lap dancer, no, shonky builder by day, lap dancer by night. <laughs> <laughs> she turns uh, tricks to pay for her fat kid, kid's Botox. <laughs> we didn't have shows like that in New Zealand, and so it introduced me to this whole culture of Australia. Yeah. So I thought uh, they were really brilliant in that, and then I was interested, actually, before you brought it up, to note, to get the panel to talk about the transition of the chaser from those days to now doing the... The well, some of those guys at the checkout. Yeah. 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 It's People uh, love the checkout. Yeah, people love the checkout. I don't know. It's it's okay. I don't know. Well, I feel like the checkout for me is like a, you know, because I don't waste my time watching ABC24 enough, <laughs> it's like when I need to waste time watching Ivy, like I go to the checkout because I know it will be solid. Is the checkout supposed to be funny? Yeah. Like am I... <laughs> I thought it was... <laughs> 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 yeah, no, there's like a whole really? bunch of comedy writers writing that. Yeah. I just feel like they're not given enough room to breathe or something. It's, it's it like, like a, a the show's about the checkout, you know, like it's like Choice magazine, but kind yeah. of a bit of a funny version. And, what? you know, I was wondering, like, why does everything about, like, have to be about That's mind blowing. I thought it was just like, I thought it was just like, everything has to be about no, no, something it's now. Be funny. It's, it's got to be about something. Mm. Yeah, and it. so then get the facts. I get it. But about like the budget, I'm sort of wondering if maybe if there is less money for producing shows, if we'll see more of a return to sort of, like, that's really low-budget stuff. It's, oh, yeah. Like, and I think that's really money. great, and I think, I think low-budget and freedom are just, like, the two keys to But is comedy. the ABC where it's going to happen anymore? I feel like because we have the internet and there's all these web displays that are happening and then, and then people get picked up from there. Like, where does the ABC sit in this landscape? Aren't they doing that thing where they've got those, like, those Bondi hipsters and stuff? Is that ABC that is doing that or is that SBS? And they create just online content? No, they're doing a new comedy show where they've employed like those people, from the people who've grown up, who've come up through the internet. Which is interesting. It's like yeah, a lot I of think people that used to work in TV to get into film. I haven't like seen it yet. But yeah. yeah. Mm. The other thing is that, I mean, I never used to be able to get Channel 31 when we had analog TV, but now I can. And I love a lot of shows on Channel 31. But again, so maybe that's step gonna, it, like it's the stepping stone. Thing. Yeah, maybe you'd ha have a chance to make a really crazy show on Channel 31 and it's, just no one's pitched it. It's a question of access and also communication as well. I think that if um, if anything's produced through anything, it's a matter of how many people see it as well as... But um, everyone here has Channel 31, <laughs> don't they? Well, maybe. I don't know. Like, how many people watch it and how well are the programs publicised and, you know, I just felt like the... I don't know. I got a strange perspective on something like The Late Show, which I just felt it was such an important part of my week yeah. that I had to... Like, it was that and Twin Peaks oh. at that period. <laughs> was just like, that's a whole, that's what a else do you need? Panel right but that wasn't on ABC. <laughs> um, Toby, do you watch any ABC TV now? Like, we talk about kind of how it was formative in our childhood and, and even if you have any comment on the fact that there are particular um, ABC channels that are dedicated to, to children's television solely and they develop it... Um, Obviously, I, I don't want to make any judgments. I often watch kids' cartoons, and I, like, I dip in and out of that, so it might be marketed to kids, but I don't think it is. But do you watch the ABC? And do you well, I think I'm with Max. I might get in trouble, but I, I do like the new Chris Lilly. Mm. Oh, I've been watching. I'm sorry. Right. I'm really sorry. But that's not kids. Oh, it's like, yeah. oh, kids? Well, no. Well, that's... <laughs> with kids, I'm a little bit biased. So I'm not in the good position to answer, but... That younger brother who's never seen Mr. Squiggles on a, on a kids' show on ABC3. Your brother is on a TV show? He is, yeah. It's on a little um, kids' uh, sketch comedy show. Oh. It's pretty sweet, yeah. Oh, uh, what's that one? 
Uh, you're skidding me. Oh. <laughs> and, and this is actually, yeah, there's, there's actually an interesting, talking about the comedy and stuff, I think ABC have an investment, particularly in children and then being creative. I think there's a few of these kind of sketch comedy shows for, for children. So maybe they're kind of skipping past the fact that adults can go online and produce stuff now and they're kind of, maybe that's where the generation right. is. Because well, well, kids can't yeah. pick up a camera, really, yeah. They don't oh, they not can. have arms. <laughs> <laughs> or unless they don't have arms. But just, you know, thumbs and... Do the cool. kids write the show that your brother's on? No, no. Someone else writes it? No, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I know that there was a couple of others in production that were looking at getting mm. kids to be involved in the writing of it as well. Mm. But no, I think... Um, but so you do watch Chris Lilly on... I do. Yeah. I know there was a big thing... There's a big story about Peppa the Pig. Yeah. I haven't seen Peppa the Pig. Peppa Pig. Peppa, Peppa oh, Peppa Pig. Pig. There's no in the. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I haven't seen them. Have you guys seen them? No, but it's what getting cancelled, is that right? Or is it just That's being yeah, held up? That's like the worst thing, thing that could like, happen. Yeah. If the yeah. ABC funding cuts, they're going to get rid of Peppa Pig. Sorry. Mm. Children are money. taking to the streets. Yeah, yeah right. That's, that's, that's not an Australian show, is no, it? No, that's British. Yeah. I think, I think Peppa Pig is really interesting in terms of, like, uh, convergence. And obviously I spoke a lot about Twitter, but it's, like, convergence of people around. Like, the ABC funding cuts were announced before um, Peppa Pig being cancelled was held up as an example and but that was the galvanizing factor like as soon as everyone had this thing to Grand rally to. around yeah mm. it became real which it's not it's silly but it, but it had this air of being yeah. real i don't know i'm cynical i think all this this new new kid stuff seems really like kind of marshmallowy or something like i think the stuff that i remember from the late 70s and 80s was really dark and I just don't think they make dark TV anymore, but they did on the ABC. Like, even Dance the Wombles was dark. They were homeless. Well, play, <laughs> play school. <laughs> the, um... But that's interesting that you I say, oh, well, yeah. I TV is as dark as it, no, as it, as it used it to be. But that leads yeah. me to talk about, like, we've talked a lot about Australian TV comedy, and we've talked about kids' shows that are made internationally or locally, but what about local drama on the ABC? Does anyone watch anything that they create? Like, personally... I, I don't, and like I might dip in and out of kind of the kind of variety shows that they'll have on there, like Spicks and no, Space, I, like I, I love, and that kind of thing. I, th I thought Redfern Now was a really incredible yeah. show. Yeah. Redfern Now was great. And I'm told story. I think, I think that's the thing that ABC can do sometimes is just tell those stories that aren't being told, but it was also really well produced, and, and you got to see these actors who are really amazing, but you don't normally get to see those actors in the one ensemble really showing their craft. And I thought... Mm. I thought Redfern Now was really beautiful for that. There was that, was it Paper Giants or something? Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, um, the, the commercial networks are putting quite a lot of um, budget, I think, behind uh, locally produced drama at the moment. Um, maybe more than ABC, but um, there's the Dr. Blake Mysteries. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Bryony's sister. Yeah, everybody loves her. I love yeah, her. And she's, <laughs> and she's starring in that new Australian horror that everyone's crazy the about. The Babadoc? Yeah. I'm going to let you tangent a bit. <laughs> Shut it down. So, are there any other questions? Yeah, no, I think we're going to have oh. to wrap it up. Oh, I'm off, I'm off. We're running a bit behind. Oh, um, sorry, everyone. Some <laughs> of the panel actually has to go to a few other Emerging Writers uh, Festival events, um, which is a good reminder that the festival is actually running for another two days. So if, uh, have a look at the program, see if you can um, fit in one last event with them. 
Uh, but for now, I'd like to thank you all for coming out and please join me in thanking Steph, Penny, Jane, Max and Toby for coming out. And yeah. <laughs> I didn't know how to sing this count, but in the I was just like... You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.